Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. This is episode nine of the Mindfulness Movement and Exercise podcast, and we are going to pick up where we left off and can you continue talking about learning and movement. But first, let's recap last time a little bit. So we discussed a number of things last time related to learning, including what it is, it's the acquisition of knowledge or skills through experience, study, or being taught. We also talked about how the brain changes as you learn and the role of BDNF, which if, you're, if you remember is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and it's a protein that um, is used when neurons are firing together, which is what learning is. Kind of cool. We also covered the four pillars of learning as proposed by Dehean. I think I'm saying his name right. And they are attention, active engagement, error feedback, and consolidation. I made a mistake during the podcast last time when I said stress is the ability to pay attention. That's not exactly true. Stress is a focal point for your attention, and whatever your stressor is, the thing that is causing you stress, tends to draw your attention to it. But you can place your attention somewhere else if you choose. That comes with awareness. Before we continue discussing learning, try this. I want you to imagine you're going to come into a comfortable seated position. Let your eyes close. Imagine you've walked into a room. Someone is standing in the front of the room and the person says to you, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. There are a series of questions about a topic that you know fairly well, but you haven't had any time to prepare. And the person at the front of you, in the front, at the front of the room says, and I want you to answer these questions as best as you can. Take a moment to observe what your reaction to that situation would be. How would you feel about that? Do you feel anything on a visceral level? Does it change your heart rate or your breathing at all? Do you feel any tension creep in? Now I want you to imagine that you've walked into that same room You've been prepared ahead of time. You've been told ahead of time that you're going to be asked a series of questions around a topic that you know well. You have time to review the topic. You even have time to make some flashcards to kind of figure out what you know about the topic. The person begins asking you questions. How does this feel? Do you feel more confident? Are there as many shifts viscerally or in your muscular tension? Go ahead and open your eyes. Now in both of these situations, you're being asked to perform. I'm going to talk about the definition of performance in a moment. 
Are these ideal situations for learning? Perhaps the second one might be. Perhaps the first one might be less so. Why? And everyone's gonna be a little bit different with this. Not everyone's gonna have the same reactions. But most people, their arousal level is going to be lower in the second situation. This is not to say that the arousal level will be gone. It will be low. It's not going to be low because you're still being asked to answer questions. You're still being tested. But you've had time to prepare. You've had time to make sure you're coming to the table with something. So let's get into today. A couple of big things happened this week, actually, in the news. The Rubik's Cube speed test was broken, speed record was broken. And what this means is the person is given a Rubik's Cube, they're given an opportunity to look at the Rubik's Cube, not, you know, they can turn it, but they can't do any of the shifting of the, of the tiles. They're allowed to look, and then when they feel ready, they let the timer know. Timer starts the timer, and they put the Rubik's Cube in order. The person that set the record did it in 3.1 seconds. Something else happened this week. Simone Biles, at the age of 26, set a record for winning the most U.S. Olympic championships, I believe is what it is. Yes, she won her, she won her eighth all-around title at the U.S. Gymnastics Championships. For those of you that don't follow gymnastics, there's a couple of things to note that are worth noting here. First of all, age 26 is is old <laughs> for female gymnastics. So that in and of itself is very impressive that she is still competing at an incredibly high level and still doing these, blowing her competitors out of the water. Another thing to note is she pulled out of the of a variety of events during the 2020 Olympics because she had a case of the twisties. The twisties, are essentially this mind-body disconnect that happened when you're in the air. Nobody's quite sure what causes them, but Simone has said in interviews that she felt a lot of pressure going into the 2020 Olympics, and she also felt not as confident, perhaps. And if you, that was all during the pandemic. So there's a lot going on right there. Both of these individuals are competing, are performing at incredibly high levels. How did they learn to do this? And what does all this learning have to do with movement? Well, they did it by recognizing patterns. The Rubik's Cube, the pattern is visual and spatial and requires motor control. The gymnastics, the patterns are also visual and spatial and require motor control. 
different levels, different types. Recognizing patterns is how we know things. It's how we predict what is going to happen. It's a way for us to make sense of things and it's a result of learning. It's a result of past experience. It's a result of practicing things prior to the day where you're asked to perform. Now, many of us are never gonna be in a situation where we actually have to perform our skills. Many of us are just doing this whole movement thing because we enjoy it, or we're trying to impart a love of exercise onto someone else, or we're trying to stay more fit, or we're trying to keep going as we as we age. There's a lot of different reasons people have for moving and exercising. But the more confident we are in our movement vocabulary and whatever skill set we have, the more we're going to be able to apply it and transfer it to other areas of our life, which this is where I think things get really interesting. So what exactly is motor learning? There's a few different definitions, but for the purposes of today, I'm going to go with the definition that I found on a a human kinetics, it's an excerpt from a book on motor learning. And I found it on a human kinetics, on the human kinetics website. Motor learning is a relatively permanent change in the ability to execute a motor skill as the result of practice or experience. Let's unpack that a little bit. So it's a permanent change in your ability. It means that how you were doing this thing in the beginning is different. When you first started practicing it is different than how you are doing it now. There's a number of reasons these differences can happen. Part of them are simply due to, to structural changes that occur at the level of the body. If I'm going to teach someone how to deadlift and the person does not have a baseline level of strength. I'm gonna start with really lightweight and I might use a variety of feedback tools to help the person understand the action of deadlifting. After a short amount of time, because let's be perfectly honest, deadlifting is, unless you're trying to deadlift the maximum amount, amount of weight possible, deadlifting is not a very complex motor skill. After a short period of time, so as a result, the period of time for this is going to be short, the person will be able to understand how to perform the deadlift without me instructing it in any way. This isn't to change, say that there isn't more that can be learned from the deadlift. You can play with all kinds of different things, but that's going to require a lot of internal curiosity or a lot of curiosity from the person coaching you to direct your attention to other places. So we have this relatively permanent change in how we do something. This happened because we practiced it. This is different than performance. I told you we'd give you the definition of performance, which is the act of executing a motor skill that results in a temporary, non-permanent change. 
when the person who set the speed record for the Rubik's cube and went, went out to perform, he wasn't looking to learn anything from that experience. He was looking to do. When Simone Biles went out to perform at the most recent US championships, she was not looking to learn anything from that experience. She was looking to, to perform, to do, to execute at the highest level that she could. The analogy I found, which I really liked, was you can think of motor learning and performance as the difference between boiling an egg and boiling water. When you boil an egg, there is a change in the firmness of the egg, in the state of the egg. This change is permanent. The egg is never going to go back to being the runny, unformed thing <laughs> that it was before. Contrast this with water. When you boil water, the water starts bubbling, it changes shape, it changes the way it behaves. But when you turn the, wa turn the temperature down, the water can return to its initial way of being. The change was not permanent, it was temporary. From a physio physiological perspective, Motor learning results in structural changes in the brain. You are using so many different parts of your brain to perform tasks. You're using so many different parts of your brain to learn how to do new tasks. And I talked about this when I talked about the different aspects of mindfulness, how, you know, there's the salient network and there's the central executive network. And all of these use different parts of your brain so you can pay attention, so you can observe and so that's happening on that level but then you add in this act of moving and then oh my goodness other parts of the brain are going to have to kick in so that you can perform the desired movement skill or movement task this results in changes in the central nervous system allowing for production of the new skill if you watched Simone Biles fault, the really challenging one that she did, the one where she got a point of a, a half point of deduction because her coach was there to spot her in case she needed it. There was <laughs> a lot of work that went into perfecting that skill. How did she learn how to do that with her body? One of the things she does as she executes that fault, which you would not, which would be very easy to miss if you weren't used to looking at movement, is she rotates her head. The head almost drives the motion. Some point along the way, she figured that out. She figured out that if she did that, it increased her chance of success. Again, permanent, this learning act thing, it's, it's permanent. We figure out things that work and we go with it. How do we learn new movement patterns, new motor patterns, I should say? 
this is through three different things that we'll kind of unpack in just a second that you learn motor patterns through movement. So again, the Rubik's cube guy, when he was figuring out how to manipulate the tiles, he had to learn how to use his hands in a way that would allow him to do it very quickly. Simone Biles, when she was learning that complicated vault layout, she had to figure out how to rotate her body in space. And again, if you watch it, the way she does it with her head, it's very impressive. We do it through interactions with rich sensory environments. Our brain likes input. It makes it easier to focus when we're getting input. So in a rich sensory environment, our input is more, not so much that it feels chaotic, and not so much that you have to fight through a lot of noise to pay attention. But it's still enough that your attention can be directed and focused. And what this does is it does, it drowns out the rest of the noise. The third thing is challenging experiences that require problem solving. The Rubik's Cube time center, you had to figure out how to do this. This is challenging. How fast can I change these tiles? What is the most efficient route from point A to point F? Maybe even more letters than that, I don't know. Simone Biles, she had to figure out how to rotate her body in the air and land on her feet after hitting a vault at really high speed. So let's break this down a little bit more. Movement is the act of changing location or position. I have said this before. Movement can be intentional or unintentional. If we're looking at this through the lens of learning, movement is going to be intentional. When I watched the person doing the Rubik's Cube, it was so interesting because nothing else moved. There was no extraneous movement. Again, it was very intentional how he was moving the tiles. When any high-level gymnast performs a routine, it's very intentional. They know the transitions that they are trying to hit to get from point A again to point F. There's a high level of focus there. And when they finish, if they are not successful, there's a high level of stepping back and asking, what do I need to change in order to accomplish this? I found this great definition of learning. I know we talked about the definition of learning earlier, but I found another great definition of learning, which was, and this relates a little bit more to what we're talking about here with the motor learning. Permanent behavior, behavioral modifications that take place as a result of experience. So if we think about learning in any sort of fitness environment or movement environment, 
it's purposeful. You're learning something because you want to, not because you have to. And this, I think, is where exercise and movement get a little tricky. A lot of feel like people feel like they have to exercise. They don't necessarily feel like they want to exercise. So when you think of it from that lens, how effective is learning going to be? Or is the person going to be able, is the person going to learn as much as someone who's really curious and really interested? And in all fairness, do traditional fitness environments lend themselves to this level of inquiry? Inquiry, or are we just doing exercises to do exercises? Just some things to ponder. Interactions with rich sensory environments. So let's go on to number two, covered movement. Let's go on to number two. These interactions with these rich sensory environments. A Rubik's cube for the right person is going to be inherently interesting. It's a cube, it's tiles, rotate and shift. There's color. So you get the sensory input from the visual input. You get the sensory input from the ability to manipulate and move the tiles. It in and of itself, and you have, you have something that it can do. When you move the tiles, you change the colors. So the Rubik's cube, again, for some, is going to be a rich sensory environment. It's going to be interesting. Gymnastics equipment, for some, is going to be interesting. You have different textures. You have mounts, mats that bounce. You have mats that are soft that you can tumble and manipulate your body into. You have bars that are uneven that you can swing and catch and move your body around. You have changes in height with things like the vault. You have balance challenges with things like the beam. Again, for some, this will be really interesting. It's going to be very sensory rich. If you watch young children, if they ever walk into your space, you don't need to give them toys. They will find their own toys. They will find whatever looks interesting and different to them and start playing with it. We, we lose that a little bit as adults. We start, we stop viewing our surroundings as interesting. We are told when we walk into a gym that these are the things we are supposed to do with the equipment. But what happens if you walk into a gym without that perception? What happens if you walk into a gym and just think, oh, what can I do with these things today? What shows up? What do you get curious about? What draws your attention? Challenging experiences that require problem solving is number three. When arousal is too low and a person isn't sufficiently challenged, there aren't any, really any problems to be solved. A person is not interested in solving any problems because everything is, is low. Arousal is low, there's no stress. 
the act of doing becomes rote, so no new learning takes place. Again, if we're looking at a traditional gym environment and maybe some of the traditional fitness programming that exists, do we really think it's surprising that people have a hard time sticking with exercises or routines? Again, something to ponder. So even though, when we look, when we go back to these two examples I've been giving this whole time, when we look at the Rubik's cube, even though the Rubik's cube never changes in size or what it does, it's always going to be the same size, and it, the tiles are always going to be able to be manipulated. But the pattern always changes. The person who recently set the record. He presumably became really good at figuring out how to manipulate the patterns. So to increase the challenge so that he could increase his problem solving abilities, he began doing it for time. I don't know if this is exactly what happened, but I can, I can speculate that perhaps that is what happened because doing it for time added a new layer of problem solving that needed to occur. Simone Biles, think of all of the skills she's learned that preceded what she's doing now. Every time she got, every time she became really good at a skill, she would change the challenge a little bit so that there was a new problem to solve. As a result, she, she keeps growing and she keeps learning. There's so much more I could say about this, but I'm going to leave it with this. How do you keep growing and learning within your movement practice? How do you continue to challenge yourself, not just physically, but mentally? with your body and how it interacts with the environment. Again, just some things to ponder. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining me. I will be back next time with one more closeout podcast on this particular theme. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up. All right. Thank you.